Praise God. All right, so we are in uh, part three of Purim and Providence. Part three, I'm going to try to sew this up today. If not, we'll go to part four, really trying to get it done. Uh, but it's such a fascinating story, such an exciting story. And there's so much in this story that's relevant in every generation and even peaks in different generations that I think, you know, it's important to be reading these portions every, every year. And even as we come into the festivals, to read the portions surrounding the festivals every year. Purim, what a story. An amazing story. You know, part of the celebration of Purim is you read the entire story at Purim. Now, we've spread it out over three weeks. We've been reading this for three weeks. And I hope you're enjoying it. Man, it's like they've made movies out of this. Uh, but what an exciting story. One of the things I love to do is I love to say, Holy Spirit, you know, show me where I'm at in this story. Help me connect with my life and the nation I live in and the things around us as a nation. Help me connect all those dots. Find the rhythm of your spirit and what you're doing in your providence in my life, in my nation. So uh, I'm going to encourage you to do that as well and uh, just really kind of resonate with the Word of God. It's a living Word. His Word is a living Word. And so it'll resonate with you if you uh, invite the Spirit of God to come to help you with that. Okay, so today our focus on uh, Purim and Providence is going to be on uh, when, why, and how God empowers His people to defend their lives, their liberties, their properties, from those who would try and take them away. Purim, like many of the festivals, is the story of religious freedom, of liberties. We are made in the image of God. God is free. We're to be free. And so freedom is a huge thing when it comes to the kingdom of God, the will of God, what God desires for our lives. And so this is a great story that's all about religious freedom. If you think about it, what Haman's saying is the Jewish people can't exercise their religion. That's really what he's saying. Their laws are different from our laws. Their ways are different from our ways. Let's get rid of them. It's, it's really, you can't exercise your religion, which makes this relevant for all of us in every age. Because the spirit of Antichrist is all about stopping you from experiencing the ways of God. So this is a great story. The prime minister of Persia, Haman. <laughs> Don't even start that. I'll never, this would be maybe part four or five, right? Man. Okay. The prime minister of Persia, ushers, has gained the funding... He gained the funding, secured the funding and legislation to bring about the genocide of the Jewish people. Now, both Mordecai and Esther choose the path of appeal to secure their people's God-given rights rather than a strategy of gathering a mob, rioting, looting, and mayhem. Think about that for a moment. They chose the path of peaceful appeal to bring about change in their society. They did not resort to mob rule or mob rioting and looting 
and mayhem. We saw that over the last summer, didn't we? Different cities on fire as the mob mentality, the mob rule moved through and demanded their agenda. It was horrible, filled with violence, rape, even murder. There were two insurrections, one in Seattle and one in Portland. The one in Portland is still happening, by the way. But most of that's kind of settled down with the election, because in the election, much of the Marxists' agenda will now be met. So that's kind of simmered down a little bit for now. But let's not forget either, let's not forget either what took place on January 6th. I'm sorry, June 6th. No, January 6th. At the Capitol. That too was an example of mob rule. That too was an example of mob violence. That too was an example of we have our agenda and by golly, you're going to have to come to terms with it. That's not how we, under God's rule and reign, bring about change. This violent, hate-filled mob approach to getting your agenda in place is forbidden. It's forbidden for us who call ourselves by God's name. The paradigm that we've been looking at says otherwise. What we learned in the first series is that all authority, even pagan authority, comes from God. To resist pagan authority is to resist God. There are exceptions to that, granted. At some point, hopefully we can talk about the exception. Our problem is authority in general. If we don't like authority, we just what? Gather a mob and protest. Break some things, light some fires. God has made it very clear that all authority comes from Him. We're to submit and obey our authorities. We find that from A to Z, from Genesis to Revelation, we're to submit and obey our authorities, regardless if they're pagan. We're to honor them and to bless them. We see that with Mordecai and Esther. He's a pagan king. He doesn't know God. Well, how do they treat him? With honor and respect. Even when their very lives are at risk, they appeal. They don't create a mob scenario and start burning things down, raping and looting and murdering. That's not the path of the righteous. That's not the church's response to civil government when it becomes tyrannical. We're to appeal. When we are aggrieved, we are to appeal to authority with honor and respect. And if they don't respond and the tyranny grows, we are called to suffer for a while. We're called to, with great patience, suffer as we wait on God to intervene. Yes, we can peacefully protest. You can boycott financially. 
You can flee when tyranny is just overreaching. But you can't go grab a mob of people, get your guns and go out and start a firestorm. You'll find no precedent for that in the scriptures. It's the doctrine of interposition that you'll find for the righteous. In the end, through interposition, we will be able to defend our lives and our liberties and our properties. The doctrine of interposition is pretty much lost today. Most people in the church don't even understand it. Interposition is, is the art of getting in between the people and the higher authorities that have become abusive and have denied people their God-given rights. But the one who interposes must be one who him or herself also has authority. The interposer has authority. It's usually, typically, a lower authority that gets between the people and a higher authority and says, you can't do that. I stand in front of the people for the people and I say, no more. This is what we find throughout the scriptures. This is what we see in Mordecai and Esther. This is what we saw throughout our revolution and even in our civil war. Interposition. It's the model that God has given to us. Going all the way back to when our ancestors were in Egypt. We see this with Moses, how he appeals to Pharaoh. He's not arrogant. He's not a name caller. He's not a guy that goes and grabs a mob. He speaks the word of the Lord with honor and respect. There's nobility in our forerunners, Moses and Joshua and others. This is something we must learn to do. We will not bow to fear and we will not lose our hope. We will seek God. We'll call on his name and we'll ask him for those in authority to interpose on our behalf. He's always responded, this is how he works. So interposition is when lower established civil authorities, or if it's in the context of the church, it would be, it would be maybe uh, a leader that's grabbed too much power. And so the board of directors or the elder interposes between the leader and the people. Or you can find this even in the home, you know, where you have these situations where, where maybe dads just become abusive, you know? Mom can get in between him and the kids. You know, you have all these different examples. But when you talk about civil, and we're in the context of a, a, um, a story about civil authority, so we'll keep it there for now. But interposition in this context is when a lower established civil authority stands up and resists on behalf of the people, resists the higher authority who's abusing the people. Mordecai has been appealing to a civil authority. If you've, if you've listened, Mordecai is interposing on behalf of his people. Who's he interposing to? Yeah, a lower authority. Esther, the queen of Persia. She's the queen, but she doesn't have the power of the king. She's nowhere near close to the power of the king. Her authority is far less than the king's authority. In fact, if she comes in, unrequested, 
It could cost her her life. She's not equal with the king. She's a lesser authority. And Mordecai's begging and pleading with her. He's appealing to her. You must interpose on behalf of our people, Esther. And now the lesser authority, Queen Esther, is now appealing to the higher authority on behalf of her people. You know why we wear masks on Purim? It comes early in the first couple chapters where Mordecai tells Esther more than once, don't reveal who our people are. When she's taken to the palace, he says, don't tell anyone you're Jewish. Don't let anyone know we're Jewish, Esther. You've got to hide that. Why? Because empires always, for whatever reason, want to genocide the Jewish people. It's the spirit of this world. Most Jewish people hide their Jewishness all the time. They've learned. They've learned. Keep your heads low when it comes to your Jewish identity. So one of the celebrations we do on Purim is we all wear masks. This year they're mandated. But it's the masquerade party. It's where we remind ourselves that, yeah, sometimes it's not very good to let everyone know that you're connected to the Jewish people, right? Okay, so the king, or uh, Esther now is... Uh, interposing, and she's stepping between higher authorities and the people. So let's take a closer look at this. Esther chapter 7. We'll make our way down. If you remember, she's already had a meeting, a banquet, with just the king and Haman. And he has come, and he's full of himself, and he's all excited. He went home after the first banquet. She says, let's do this again tomorrow. And uh, he, he went home, told his wife, man, you, can't, you won't believe it. I'm the highest person in the kingdom out other than the king. I'm like a close second. In fact, even the queen gave a banquet just for the king and me. You know, so he's really feeling his oats, right? But he can't stand Mordecai because Mordecai's Jewish and won't bow to him. And so as a result, he's going to kill Mordecai and every other Jew in the kingdom. In fact, his wife and friends say, get a gallow 50 feet high, so you can hang him on it. And when you go tomorrow, go early and ask the king for Mordecai's death. And then have a good banquet. And so he's coming back, and he's going to have um, Mordecai hung. Is that where we're at in the story? Yeah, I think that's it. Okay. Oh, yeah. So that whole thing got bad, if I remember right. And has she already accused him? Help me out. From last week? Okay, so we'll get into that. All right. So now the king and Haman drank, came to drink wine uh, with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther on the second day also, as they drank their wine at the banquet, what is your petition? That's right. That's right. It, he's already been exposed. Is this right? I don't know. Okay, let me get back. I haven't even started drinking yet. That's tonight. Okay. What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half the kingdom, it shall be done. Then Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor in your sight, O king. Notice how she appeals. Notice the honor that she shows over and over and over. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given to me as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold 
I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent. You catching this? I mean, we're ready to start a revolution over anything and everything in America. I don't know what it is about Americans, right? We have this rugged individualism and independence, and we're ready to go to war over anything. She's saying, you know, if we were just going to be enslaved, I wouldn't even appeal to you. Huge, huge amount of humility here on her behalf. For the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Then King Ahasuerus answered or asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? Who would presume to do thus? Esther said, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and the queen. Now it's worse. His own wife said, If Mordecai's Jewish, you're going to fall before him. It's over for you. And now he's right there. His worst nightmare is happening. The king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's head. Then Harbonah, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. Verse 10, So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai. And the king's anger subsided. Mordecai was to be hung this day. Haman was on his way to request from the king his death, already built the gallows ahead of time. And now the whole story begins to turn. Everything that they had planned against the Jews, and it looked bad. You know, when it's financed by the government and the king's army and people, and people, not just the king's army, the people all around you are going to turn on you and kill you and take your stuff, it's over. What are the chances? But in the providence of God, God navigating all the circumstances has the tables turned, and all of a sudden, Haman's hung on his own gallows. This is the turning of the table. This is poetic justice. This is how God works over and over and over. Chapter 8, on that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther, 
he gave Queen Esther Haman stuff. The house, the power, the money, the authority. It becomes Esther. Esther absorbs, if you will, Haman's heritage, Haman's destiny, Haman's position and place in the kingdom. It's given to Esther. And Mordecai became, or came before the king. This is, this, is, this is Mordecai's first time that he gets to come before the king. Before that time, he can't get beyond the king's gate. He's, he's nobody. He has no civil authority. Now, for the first time, Mordecai is before the king. Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had dis- disclosed what he was to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Can you, can you imagine this? Mordecai goes from no standing at all to the prime minister of the king of Persia. I mean, he must have just passed out like, what? How could this be? He becomes the prime minister. God exalts people and he also removes people. And it's all according to his will. You know what our job is? To do the right. We should never consider consequences. It should never be about, well, if I do this, this is going to happen. If I do that, that's going to happen. Forget what's going to happen. Just do the right thing. What's the right thing to do? You be that witness of God. You be that man or woman of God. And the decisions you make in your life should be based on what is the will of my Father in heaven. You do that and everything's going to be okay. And let me tell you something. You will be persecuted. But God will turn those tables around. You say, well, what happens if I'm martyred? Well, you'll have a throne and you'll be able to judge people until we get up there with you. It's a promotion either way. You will be rewarded. Honor the king and the king will honor you. That includes earthly kings. King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, verse 5. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me go down to chapter 8 and verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept and implored him. You catching this? This is the queen. She bows, she falls before the king. She begs him, she entreats him with tears. Man, when's the last time we saw something like that? You know, I'm sorry, but, but, but there, there's a growing number of our civil leaders that are just so arrogant. We have no decorum anymore. The name-calling, the belittling, the belittling and the demeaning, you know, it's just like, it's unbelievable. I cringe at it. She wept and implored him to avert this evil scheme of Haman, the Agagite, and his plot, which he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the golden scepter to Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king. Then she said, if it pleases the king, and if I have found favor before him, and the matter seems proper to the king, and I am pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which he wrote 
to destroy the Jews who were in all the king's provinces. Great appeal, Esther. For how can I endure to see the calamity which will befall my people, and how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? So King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther, and him they have hanged on the gallows because he had stretched out his hands against the Jews. We've talked about this principle before. I'm going to say it again. Love the Jews. Bless the Jews. And you'll be loved and blessed. Hate and curse them. You'll be hated and cursed by the King of Heaven. The Jewish people are the people of God. Never forget that. Doesn't matter if they're disobedient. They're the people of God. My, my daughters, they were disobedient in their life. But they were still my daughters, even in their disobedience. I wouldn't let anyone touch on them. You might want to point out where the Jews have failed God, breaking the covenant over and over and over. But suffice it to say, they're still his children. In fact, that's his wife. Honor her. Don't forget that Jesus is a Jew. You put your faith in Jesus the Jew. He's not only the Savior of the Jews, he's the Savior of the world, but he's the line of the tribe of Judah. And he loves his people. Verse 8, Now, you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring. For a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. In short, I can't reverse it, Esther. I can't revoke it. It's Persian law. Even Persia was ruled by law. Even the king had to abide by his own law. Can't reverse it. Can't revoke it. But Mordecai, you're the prime minister now. You have the authority of the king. You can write a new law. So write away. Think through it and write and send it to your people. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, that is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. It was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, the princes, the provinces, which extended from India to Ethiopia, 120 provinces, to every province according to its script, to every people according to their language, as well as to the Jews according to their script and their language. He wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horses riding on steeds sired by the royal stud. Verse 11 and 12. In them the king granted the Jews, who were in each and every city, the right to assemble and to defend their lives. Mordecai, this is brilliant. You can't revoke what's already put in. And what, what was put in? The king, the, Haman had already written the legislation that everyone on a particular day could take up arms and kill the Jewish people. And every Jewish family that they had genocide, they got the family's house and, 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 and livestock and you know whatever they had was now theirs. They could increase, double, triple, quadruple their wealth at the expense of Jewish lives. Do you think there were people all over Persia who had already picked out who they were going to kill? 
the houses they wanted, the vineyards. Can you imagine that? So Mordecai says, all right, I'm going to write a law that says the Jewish people can take up arms. I, I think this is the forerunner to the Second Amendment. You know? I think this is where we get our idea about the Second Amendment. Right? So Mordecai says, I'm going to write a new law, and under this new law, I'm going to give the right to assemble, to organize, to gather together and strategize in order to defend their lives and also to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them. You get to defend your life, and you get to kill. Kill, kill, kill. It's a killing day. It's a killing spree. Remember the patriot, Mel Gibson? He just would not join the revolution. Just refused. He saw too much war. He said, I'm not going to do that no more. I, I, I'm done. I, I, it's, it's too much. And they begged, they pleaded, they tried to get him involved. And nothing would move his heart until it came knocking on his door. And they killed his son. And when they killed his son, he said, okay, I'm here now. And the first guy he grabs down in the river behind his house, he has an axe, he bludgeons him. If you remember, he's whacking his head, blood splattered everywhere. His younger son shows up on the bank like, oh my gosh, dad, what are you doing? He's like, he's like go away, son. And the guy's already dead. He still just whacks him like, I don't know how many more times. I mean, he was the consummate killing machine. Mordecai saying, you kill as many people as you need to. You take them all out. Even the women. Even the children. You kill every one of them that comes against you. You say, even the children? Do you realize in, in, in Nazi Germany... That was the Germans, the people, that were first persecuting and assaulting their Jewish neighbors? Even kids participating in that? Yeah. About to happen in Persia. Mordecai says, if a kid runs up and tries to whack you, kill him too. Normally you just backhand him and send him home. Mordecai says, take him out. You wait, you wait, you just be patient, be humble, appeal. You wait and you suffer. And if God opens the door to allow you to do what's necessary to stop evil, then you stop it. With everything that's in you, you stop it. I'm waiting. I'm patiently waiting, praying, loving, sharing the love of God. I'm going to continue to do that. It's going to have to get a lot worse before I think we're going to see any type of interposition. But should that come, and God forbid, but should that come, and God forbid. If the governor of Texas says, we're done, federal government. And the federal government says, really, because we're cutting off your funding. And they say, well, good, get out of our state. And they say, well, we're going to send some troops and the governor says, well, we got some militias. I'm leaving Colorado. I'm sell everything. I'm going to Texas. I'm going to tell them, look, I'm 62. I've lived my life. 
happy and full. Put me on the front line. Give me guns and put me on the front line, man. It's going to be my finest hour. That's interposition. That has to be civil authority, like a governor leading the way in order for God to be in that. Does that make sense? Until then, I don't care what mobs and what militias do whatever they want to do. I have nothing to do with them. Nothing. Appeal, appeal, appeal. Wait on God. Trust in God. And if it comes to that, and it rarely does, but if it would, then you can join in the resistance under civil authority that's interposing on our behalf. Verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Mordecai the Jew all of a sudden comes out of the palace dressed in royal robes of blue and white. That's the colors of Israel. Blue and white. That is like, I got blue lights under my porch out front. So at night I can turn them on and they're just, they're just dark neon blue. It's almost like a black light. I just love turning on the blue. <sighs> my grandkids go out and they look at it because it's like all blue, you know. Comes out in royal robes. We're in the king's signet ring. Everyone realizes the Jew is prime minister of Persia. The Jewish people can now defend themselves. And there would have been those in Persia that would have been actually opposed to what Haman was saying. There would have been a percentage of people in Persia that would have been saying, we're not going to have anything to do with this. I can tell you right now, not only were they rejoicing, they probably were also helping the Jewish people against those who would try to assault them. For the Jews, there was light and gladness and joy and honor in each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday and a holiday among the peoples of the land. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. This became a feast and a holiday. It reminds me of, of, I don't know how many people saw the movie Jacob the Liar with, um, thank you, Robin Williams. Give her the prize. Okay, Robin Williams, Jacob the Liar. He's, he tells the story. He says, the Jewish person in a Nazi labor camp one day prophesied that Hitler would die on a Jewish holiday. When pressed about what specific day that would be, he replied that it didn't matter what day, because whatever day that would be, it would be a Jewish holiday. <laughs> this becomes a Jewish holiday. Purim, the celebration of God's providence in saving the Jewish people. What a time to celebrate, right? Chapter 9, what time is it? Oh my gosh, no question and answer today. Maybe next week. So now in the 12th month, chapter 9, this is the month of Adar. On the 13th day of the king's command, an edict were about to be executed. On the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, 
It was turned to the contrary, so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in the cities throughout the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. They're a minority group in Persia. What's everyone so afraid about? This is a minority group. Yet they're just in fear, dreading, terrified that the Jews would defend them, their own lives. This again is the providence of God. Just like he can give favor, he can also spread fear. This is the fear-mongering spirit of God sent by God to put in their hearts, don't touch my people. Even all the princes of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who were doing the king's business assisted the Jews because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, and the man Mordecai became greater and greater. Verse 5, thus the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying, and they did whatever they pleased to those who hated them. At the citadel in Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Jews' enemy, they too were there in the city. The Jews, however, did not lay their hands on any plunder. On that day, the number of those who were killed at the citadel in Susa was reported to the king. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the ten sons of Haman at the citadel in Susa. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. And what is your further request? It also will be done. Esther, pour it on. Any more requests? What else can I do for you? This is the power and presence of God moving in the heart of the king. Then Esther said, if it pleases the king, let tomorrow also be granted to the Jews who are in Susa to do according to the edict of today and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded that it should be done so and an edict was issued in Susa and Haman's ten sons were hanged. So the prime minister of Persia, whom everyone feared, Haman himself, had ten sons, and they all feared his sons too. And now his sons have been captured. Haman already hung, but his sons, very powerful and certainly able to do their dad's bidding, right? Esther says, I'm asking for their heads too. So he says, build the gallows, hang them in front of everyone. And so she had the gallows belt, and they were hung. Now, i got to ask you this question. Do you think the story of Purim is relevant? Do you think this story has something to say to every one of us in every generation in every nation? Absolutely. Do you know that Hitler thought this story was very relevant? Hitler, who wanted to kill the Jews, he knew about this story. You know what he said? He says, have the story banned. The book of Esther shall not be read and the festival of Purim shall not be celebrated and all synagogues must remain closed on Purim throughout all of the Nazi-occupied Poland. Why? Hitler knew the power of the story. 
So he banned it and closed the synagogues. Oh, someone go downstairs. Hurry! In my office, in my satchels, my Purim book. I need my Purim book. No one's moving. I know the story's so good. The story's so good, no one wants to leave. I want to read this. Let me, as she goes and gets that, let me go down to, to uh, you know what? I think I'm going to wind this up. Maybe I'll do this next week. Should we carry this on next week? Ah, I think I'm going to have to do that next week. Maybe part four, although I want to get to Passover. I want to go to Passover, but you know what? It's the same story. Different celebration. All the festivals can be summed up with the phrase, they tried to kill us, we won, let's eat. That is the story of all the festivals. So, so we will shift gears, but maybe I'll do part four next week. I'll have to decide uh, and finish this up, but I do want to read this story. Okay, I think they're coming. Yes, yes, yes. Give Pastor Chris a round of applause. Thank you, Pastor Chris. Thank you, sir. Okay, so let me read this for you. Um, this is a prophecy that Hitler gave. Do you know you can speak things and prophesy and not realize you're prophesying? That God can actually make you say things that you, I shouldn't say make you, influence you to say things that you don't realize he's influenced you to say that are actually prophecies? This is called the prophecy of Hitler. This is from my book on the Purim Anthology. It's an anthology. There's books for every festival by Philip Goodman. In a speech by Hitler on January 30th, 1944, and he has all the sources, so you can go look them up. I already looked up the sources. They're legit. In a speech by Hitler on January 30th, 1944, he said that if the Nazis went down to defeat, the Jews could celebrate, quote-unquote, the second triumphant Purim. What was the first one? Persia, yes. Where they overthrew a tremendous number of people who sought their deaths. And he says, if the Nazis are defeated, they can celebrate their next great and second Purim. Nuremberg, Germany. This was the chosen site for the trials that would take place in 1945 and 1946 after they defeated the Nazis and captured the chieftains. Judges from the Allied powers, Great Britain, France, and the Soviet Union, and the United States presided over the hearings of 22 major Nazi criminals. Twelve prominent Nazis were sentenced to death. Twelve of them got the death sentence. Only ten were executed because one, Martin Bormann, was sentenced in absentia because he was presumed dead. And Robert Ley committed suicide during the proceedings. So it left 10 Nazi chieftains sentenced to death. Their death would be a public execution. And guess what? By hanging, hanging. Let me read this. On October 16th, 1946, 10 sons of Haman 
of our own day, Nazi chieftains, were hung on the gallows at Nuremberg, Germany, as a punishment for monstrous crimes committed against humanity. According to an American eyewitness correspondent, when the foremost of these anti-Semites, Julius Stryker, was led to the scaffold, he shouted out, Purim Feast, 1946. You think the Nazis studied Jewish history? Think they knew a little bit about the Jews? Ten of them go into the gallows, shouts that out, Purim Feast, 1946, connecting the dots. Yeah, I think these stories are more than relevant. These are the stories we should read, tell our kids. These are the celebrations we should celebrate, the parties we should have to make a memorial of God's providence, his care for us and watching over us. All right, so I'm going to end. I still have the rest of the chapter and also chapter 10. I may do that fourth part next week, but you already know the story, so I may skip it and just get into Passover. I don't know. The main point is go have fun today. Eat, drink, dance, tell the stories, get some groggers, do all that. And hopefully next year, we'll be able to do it corporately once again as one of our annual festivals. But for now, Shabbat Shalom, Hak Sameach, Happy Purim 2021 to you and yours and all those that are watching via our live streaming. Shabbat Shalom.